This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The financial crisis started more than a decade ago and is still impacting the U.S. and the world economy. During that historically weak recovery that followed, central bankers played an increasingly larger role in critical decisions surrounding interest rate setting and how much money to pump into the economy and, ultimately, who benefited the most. A new book looks at just how much influence central bankers have gained since the crisis and what it has meant, not just for the big banks, but also for the average person, small and medium-sized businesses, and the economy more generally. The views of the author of the book can be are, are very different from those most observers are used to hearing. Nomi Prinz is a former banker with Goldman Sachs and with Bear Stearns, who is now an investigative journalist and author. After publishing many articles and books, uh, taking the Fed and other central banks to task for how, in her opinion, they mishandled the financial crisis, she was invited to address a joint meeting of the Federal Reserve, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank three years ago. Since just before receiving that invitation, she had called recent central bank policies insane. She thought it was uh, all a mistake. She even contacted the Fed office to ask if that invitation was a mistake. They replied, we're looking forward to hearing what you have to say. The then Fed chair, Janet Yellen, opened the event, and Ms. Prinz was the second speaker behind an assistant treasury secretary. In the author's note in her new book, she writes that we're headed for another epic financial fall. The question is not if, but when. That new book is titled Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. And a pleasure to have Nomi Prinz joining us on the show, as well as, from the Knowledge Award and staff, Steve Sharetta. Nomi, great to have you with us. Thank you so much, Dan. That was also a very lovely introduction. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, Steve. Great seeing you again. Yeah, good to be here. Hi, Nomi. Great to have you with us. Thank you. This obviously has been an incredibly important topic for you uh, over the last decade or so. And and take us into your mindset and how you believe central bankers have made mistakes and and have set us up for that next potential fall. Yeah. So, I mean, as you as you mentioned in the um, meeting that I had there, I mean, it was basically a part of a a conference that the um, Federal Reserve IMF and World Bank have every year in Washington, where they invite other central bankers from around the world. It's a closed conference, but they've sort of discussed issues of the day. And at the time, um, the topic which is which is relevant to that question was how come Wall Street isn't helping Main Street? That was a topic they chose, um, not me. And the idea behind that was uh, we have offered, I, I use the term subsidize the banks and conjured money, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second, so much help uh, to the financial system and, and to assets. Uh, financial assets and markets around the world, how come this isn't trickling down into the real economy? How come it's not um, instilling sustainable growth figures? Um, And that's really one of the main concepts within the book is that there has been this mass at this point up to $22 trillion worth um, of subsidization for the financial system, for banks, for the markets. Um, And that hasn't really produced sustainable growth. Yes, we had the last quarter in the U.S. growth over 4.1%, but that was largely due to um, one sector of the market, uh, the the soybean sector, as well as a lot of debt that has been amassed by by consumers, by households, which is now nearing another record high uh, to propel some of that. But over the last 10 years, 
um, despite this this conjuring of quantitative easing, low rates, easy money policy by the major central banks in particular, um, there's been relatively little sustainable growth, certainly not over 2% for any one year in any major economy in the last 10 years, certainly not with respect to wages. Um, there has been growth in debt, there has been growth in stock markets, um, and there has been growth in the health of banks because they receive this money, but not necessarily um, in a sustainable manner, again, for the true uh, productive economy. Hi, Nomi. It's Steve here. So I think that that key theme that you were just discussing uh, comes through in in probably all the chapters because the, the part of the book is broken down into chapters by countries, and you talk about Mexico, Brazil, China, Europe, Japan, and uh, and and it's this theme seems to run through it, and it, it it's kind of it kind of sets these things against each other, which I think is a really interesting way to put it, interesting way to look at it. Uh, and you note that uh, calling them money conjurers, which I think you'll explain more in a bit about what you mean by that, but you're saying that what it succeeded to doing in the wake of the financial crisis, and I think I'm quoting from your book here, was alter the availability and magnitude of money to the financial system and its elites, but there was no such aid or direction of this money to the foundational economy. Their policies thus hadn't meaningfully altered economic stability but only certain parameters that were considered a positive reflection of it, such as the stock market. So you have an economy that looks healthy on the surface, uh, but I think what you're saying underneath is that uh, the foundation is weak or maybe even rotting. Right, and that's um, we, we see that from some of the volatility in the market. We see that from looking into um, the, the, some of those countries um, that I go through in the book. Um, I call them pivot countries because some are more of the on emerging market side and, and some are um, of the G7 and, and some like China are, are basically um, have entered uh, the, the superpower status from, from an economic perspective and actually also geopolitical perspective in these last 10 years, I think, as a result of how some of this money was conjured by, by their central bank as well as the other major G7 central banks. Um, the, the, the fact is that um, there is a direct uh, correlation and causation. So there's a straight line up between the amount of quantitative easing or, or asset buying um, that was conducted. I, I talk, I use the term collusion as the title of the book because the Fed required or, or sort of colluded with some of the other major G7 banks to, to sort of keep this policy going and, and, and going globally um, relative to the stock markets in, in these individual countries. And, and the money that was manufactured or conjured largely went into purchasing different kinds of asset or debt in the different areas, depending on what the needs were. So, for example, in the United States, um, the Fed produced, conjured whatever, uh, $4.5 trillion worth at its height. Of, of money in order to purchase basically two things, U.S. government debt from the banks, because they are the major sort of brokers of that government debt in general, so provided them money in return for uh, those bonds to come from the Treasury Department to the banks and back to the Fed, um, as well as $1.75 trillion um, as part of that $4.5 trillion of buying mortgage-related assets. Now, mortgages were at the crux of the, the financial crisis 10 years ago, and as were manifestations of mortgages throughout various engineering of, of, of the banks that were involved. Um, and, and as a result of that, banks were able to sort of receive money in return for effectively rotting assets. And as a result of that, those assets could be valued higher um, than they actually should have been because you have the source, the Fed, uh, buying them. So you have demand, you have a source, and, and, and therefore other assets besides the ones that are bought at a higher level than they 
should be, um, also get to be marked higher. So, so there was a lot of finagling in that perspective. And then also um, taking that globally, for example, in Japan, quantitative easing looked like purchasing um, ETFs or exchange-traded funds, so more money going into basically the stock of companies that the Bank of Japan and Japanese government deemed worthy of receiving their money, which were generally the bigger uh, companies in the country. And within Europe, uh, the European Central Bank did the same thing and, and predominantly bought government debt as well as corporate bonds. So again, bought the debt of the companies they deemed worthy of, of having that subsidy, which were, again, the bigger companies over the years. And what that resulted in um, was more inequality from the standpoint of corporate debt, emerging market versus um, developed uh, country debt, um, as well as stock markets being propelled higher as a result of money going into them and as a result of uh, money being rendered so cheap, the interest payments on, on debt being so low um, and government uh, securities being so low that stocks um, were the best place and continue to be the best place because this policy actually continues largely uh, to invest and that propelled a, a bubble in, in the stock markets throughout those nations. So I think that one of the underlying uh, things that 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 is in your book is uh, I wanted to quote from a story from the LA Times today because I thought thought it was very interesting. In other words, what this story is saying by virtual virtually any yardstick, the U.S. economy is doing great. Unemployment's near a two-decade low. The stock market is strong. It's been setting records recently. Corporate profits are at record highs. But a report out, I think, it's from the Urban Institute, finds that almost half of Americans are having trouble paying for basic needs such as food and housing. And uh, shockingly, almost a quarter of Americans experienced, quote, unquote, food insecurity, which means they didn't always know if they'd have enough to eat uh, uh, if they were hungry. So uh, is this part of what you're trying to highlight in the new book? The stock market's great. Uh, GDP looks great. Unemployment is low. (laughs) Uh, And yet there's all of these underlying problems. Um, yeah, that's right. And as a result, that that unevenness, that sort of inequality, um, economically, financially, uh, asset-wise, um, is is pervasive. Um, one of the things I mentioned before, the household debt um, in the country is extremely high. It was uh, now at the same level in the last quarter. The New York Fed reported this, in fact, relative to how it had been before uh, the financial crisis hit. Except then, household debt had a a bit more of a weighting towards actual homes, and now it's more uh, you know, credit card debt. It's auto loan debt, student loan debt, and so forth mixed into that equation. And so that's one of the, the ways to see that you know, consumers, people, citizens um, are having to borrow to, to, to meet those costs. And when you're borrowing to meet those costs, um, it's, it's, it's temporary borrowing. That temporary borrowing could, could extend for a while. But the reality is it's, it's requiring extra money to come in to make ends meet. Um, at the top end of the market, um, and about 85% of American, I'm sorry, um, 10% of Americans own 80, 85% of the stock market. So, so the participation rate in, in, in what has increased the most over these 10 years stock levels um, is, is actually quite low throughout the country. So the people that have been invested, the companies that have been able um, to borrow cheaply and, and purchase their own stock, uh, for example, to buy back their own shares in record amounts, uh, look better. 
you know, they've, they've had the benefit a, of cheaper money coming in because rates have been so low um, and the benefit of being able to utilize that money into their own shares, which propel their shares up, which makes them look better, which makes their participation in GDP look better. However, all of those people who are not involved, um, as well as those people who are borrowing um, and living either paycheck to paycheck, um, even with extra jobs, you know, with jobs that perhaps don't cover uh, them as much, whose wages aren't as high, whose benefits aren't as secure, um, are the ones struggling. So that's been a phenomenon um, as that uh, uh, LA Times um, article versus the other article notes, but today, but but also this is this is manifested throughout the world. So this is a situation that exists in many countries throughout the world because of uh, the outpouring of money that central banks have created and gone only into a fraction of uh, the markets and of people and of companies, um, but also in the relationship between emerging market countries and um, the developed countries, because because what's happened um, and what's made that relationship more unequal economically and financially is that money has gone um, zooming out to find places to, to invest because with rates low, you know, you go into the stock market, you go into emerging markets, into, into riskier uh, corporates and so forth as an investor, as a speculator, as a major financial institution or hedge fund or private equity fund uh, to find that return, to, to find that extra amount of money over the cost of money. Um, and emerging markets had been a recipient of this over the last 10 years. But, but the downside of being a recipient is money goes out, too. Um, and, you know, as, as I know from banking, as, um, as actually happens, money tends to leave an investment more quickly than it enters. So if it considered yeah. emerging so, markets... The so-called hot money. That's the so-called hot, hot money. money, right? That, that, that's exactly right. Hot, literally hot. Like, it, it's like, you know, you take your hands off because you, you burn them and, you, you know, you do that quickly. <laughs> um, and that's what happens with speculative capital. How, how do you then, how do you view the path then that... Going back to the recession here in the United States, that that Ben Bernanke took running the Federal Reserve with obviously uh, the the high levels of QE. And then I guess to the same degree, Mario Draghi with the ECB doing, you know, similar type of things in Europe. Right. I mean, that was where this this sort of collusion happened. If we go back 10 years ago and and, and the years even after that financial crisis moment, um, what what happened was that the Fed did not have enough wherewithal, because actually the financial crisis in the banking community was so much worse than was even reported, to, to simply plug those gaps and, and help um, just the, the U.S. banks and sort of leave it alone relative to the rest of the world. What wound up happening was it required um, other major central banks to, to collude to work together um, in order to precipitate this, the same quantitative easing and cheap money atmosphere throughout the world. And, um, and, and so even in some of the earlier uh, statements he was making in Congress and so forth, and I, I talk about them in my book relative to Mexico, relative to China and so forth, um, he tried very quickly to move away from um, the cause of the financial crisis being the U.S. financial system, over which the Fed uh, the Federal Reserve is supposed to have regulatory authority, so it's supposed to be watching for crises that are building, not sort of ignoring them. Um, he tried to very quickly push the idea that there was a global crisis that was somehow independent of the financial crisis that had been caused predominantly by U.S. banks. Why was it caused by U.S. banks? Because they were the ones who um, largely manufactured uh, the, the mortgage-related or toxic assets, as, as, as they became known, uh, in in the wake of uh, leading up to the financial crisis. They, they produced them um, in, in the highest quantity. They distributed them, sold them throughout the world in the highest quantity. They lent money to buyers 
to, to communities, to pension funds, well, not to pension funds, but to, to um, municipalities and so forth throughout the world in order to buy and continue to buy these assets as they were deteriorating. They caused this financial crisis. But what Bernanke tried to do is walk that back um, and say, all right, well, maybe we did, but we fixed it. Um, and look at Mexico. They're, they're hemorrhaging. You know, China's not doing great things and so forth and tried to basically um, diffuse the, the role that the Fed had played. And the only way he could really do that monetarily um, beneath those, those speeches was to require um, the rest of the banking, uh, central banking community to produce or conjure uh, record amounts of, of, of money as well to do the same thing. That kept the, the cost of money globally, which it still is, at about 0%. So even now with the Fed raising rates, um, which they started to do in December 2015 and uh, have continued uh, through the last uh, session, they... Uh, still have a situation where in the world the European Central Bank has negative rates and the Bank of Japan has negative rates. So net-net, nothing has changed in the world. They're still propelling um, this same policy forward on a global basis. Nomi, we talked about the effect on consumers a little bit, uh, or I should say the non-effect of you know a lot, yeah. of, a lot of this uh, money pumping and conjuring, as you call it, the quantitative easing and low interest rates and so forth. But there's two other points you make in the book, which I think – uh, are worth discussing. One is that all that money given to the banks, their traditional role is to lend that money out, uh, and they're supposed to be lending it out to help the economy to small and medium-sized businesses, which they completely failed on. They actually used the money to do other things. You talk about that in the book. The second thing that I think people don't realize is that by keeping those interest rates so low – they really were slamming uh, retirees and pensioners who depend on interest rates that are, are, are you know, more, let's say, what they used to be in order to fund their retirement. And uh, partly for that reason, I wouldn't say only that reason, but partly for that reason, right now we just did a story last week about how there is a looming $4.4 trillion, that's with a T, trillion-dollar shortfall in the public pension systems nationally, which is a time bomb set for the future. So those are two areas that were hurt by the policies you described that most people aren't really aware of. That, that, that's exactly right. And that's just a national figure, that $4.4 trillion. I mean, if you expand that globally, um, and again, all our economies and markets are interconnected, so globally matters, um, it, it, it becomes significantly higher. And so, yes, as a result of... Um, pension funds, um, long-term sort of life insurance type of investments as well, trying to compete with um, cheap money where they used to invest in, in, in government bonds. They used to invest in um, in the country in a way um, when those rates were higher and, and those uh, bonds were more secure than, than corporate bonds where, where um, there, there's more risk um, in terms of any individual corporation or the stock market where, yes, it has gone higher over these years. That's because there's been a lot of money that has been artificially created, which has, which has enabled it uh, to continue to go higher. Um, and because of both of those factors, the the rates um, that that retirees were, were used to getting that um, could fund them, and that they actually had planned on um, back through the decades, where where their retirement funds and whether they were pensions or four hundred one k's or whatever were were created, um, aren't there anymore. 
Um, as a result, a lot of these pension funds and so forth have had to increase their um, holdings in the stock market, which is another reason why it is higher in order to even keep up with um, these shortfalls that are coming in instead of doing it in a more secure manner that was that was more historic and legacy to pension funds. Um, and that's a problem because uh, not only is is that also a ticking time bomb? Because pensioners are now looking at um, having their risk basically imposed upon them um, in order to not even keep up with what they expected they would get over the years. Um, but also, if the markets do go down, um, if, if there is a reversal, um, not just a policy, but you know, because that's been um, something that isn't really happening that much, as I mentioned, rates are still zero throughout the world. These the central bankers don't really have a true exit plan um, because it means that. That markets would implode. Um, and that would be another source of, of real pain for, for pensioners and so forth, because all of a sudden, whatever your tri- retirement has gotten to, um, and, and all these rates are, all these stock levels are so very high that if they have portions of stock, it looks better um, for their retirement funds than it might otherwise look, um, that can go away again as quickly as money can come out of emerging markets. And then they're stuck retiring with uh, much less than what they inspect, expected, um, having basically been coerced. Um, not necessarily through their knowledge, a lot of pensioners. I mean, these happen, these, these uh, transactions happen on, on aggregate uh, bases um, and, and looking at really a, a much more difficult situation as, as people who retired in 2008, 2009 saw. So um, I know we're getting a little low on time. I think it would be great if you could tell us, you talk about uh, the, the odds or the risks of another major financial crisis as, as as being high, that it's going to be difficult to recover from because we haven't fully recovered from this one. Can you talk about um, uh, when you think that will happen? What could trigger it? I know there's multiple things and it's difficult to predict. And then also uh, what might be done to help uh, prevent some of these reactions? Yeah, so I, I used to think when I was asked this question a number of years ago, when when, when would this uh, you know crisis happen that you're talking about? I, I used to somewhat believe um, some of the leaders of these central banks who who were saying you know we will stop quantitative easing, you know we we're sort of gradually shift into something else and so forth. The European Central Bank, for example, Mario Draghi was sort of um, I talk about this in, in in collusion, sort of famous for saying, oh yes, we're we're going to basically stop this policy, uh, you know, in, in the middle of 2016. Now we're going to stop in 2017. We're reducing the amount of uh, you know, purchasing we're doing each month, but we're extending the length of months through which we're purchasing. So there's all these sort of illusions that basically boil down to we're going to continue to do what we're doing because we have no choice. Um, and as a result of that, uh, quantitative easing has globally continued to rise. Um, it, it was down a little bit last month, but for, for the most part, even as the Fed has stopped purchasing assets, the, the rest of the major central banks have, have increased their, their purchasing. So net-net, there's, there's a, a higher global quantitative easing and, and a same average interest rate. That continues to propel the illusion um, and the, to, to an extent of health economically and the reality of financial assets um, like the stock market continuing to reach uh, new highs, particularly um, in, in the U.S., uh, less so. And that's where these, these um, uh, wrinkles are going to start to show more and more pronouncedly um, in the European uh, markets. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's 
problems, for example, in Turkey in the emerging markets, okay. in Argentina in the, in the Latin American emerging markets, and so forth. And all these problems start to create wrinkles or splinters in this facade of, of a perpetual um, you know, smoothness from the standpoint of central banks producing money and it's supposedly going everywhere, not just the markets. When does that stop? I mean, it's basically a situation where, like in any um, credit crisis, in any liquidity crisis, where, where money um, starts to be afraid um, of going places, it starts to return to home base, as we're seeing um, with respect to money coming out of emerging markets and into the U.S., that becomes real money for the economies. Um, for speculators, it's just moving stuff around. Right. Um, but then when it starts to come out of stock markets in order to make up to the shortfalls that now corporations might, might show or pensioners might need or so forth, it, it starts to deflate. Um, so in terms of how long that takes to happen in the um, background of the Fed talking about raising rates and talking about selling some of their assets, which they've done slowly because they, they know the reality is if you if you sell too many assets off of the Fed's book, you know, right. bonds start to deflate. That that starts to then cause money to come out of the stock market and so forth. They're being very careful. As a result, it won't look like a crisis for for a while. The, the new Fed chairman has come in and said, Jay Powell in the, in the U.S., and said, well, we're going to continue to gradually keep up the pace of rate increases. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.